0: It's Tuesday, December 13th, 2022. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Glad to have you all here between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern. That's when we air. We also have a podcast that is free every day on demand. No charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, our online home. Lots of content there. You can also go for the podcast to FoxNewsPodcast.com or just wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Also recommend following us on social media. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram, those are options as well. Here's our lineup on today's show. Congressman Kevin Brady, right on the brink of retirement after 13 terms. GOP member from Texas. He will be here probably for the last time as a sitting congressman. He's been our guest many times. That's coming up later this hour. In the next hour, Brett Baer, our Fox News colleague, of course. He will be here in studio looking forward to that conversation. Susan Lee from Fox Business Network on some of the major... Financial and economic news coming out today, inflation, FTX developments, et cetera. And then Bill Malugian down at the border. He's in Texas. What is happening down there is somehow getting worse at that border crisis that the Biden administration has caused and that this president does not want to go see for himself. We will get the very latest. Some of it is just shocking. From Bill Malugin, coming up in our final hour here today. Before we go any further, we would love to welcome to the Guy Benson Show family this week our brand-new affiliate, WATS 960 AM in Sayre, Pennsylvania. They'll be airing our show weeknights, 9 to midnight. That's on Liberty 960, the Twin Tears News Talk. So welcome, W.A.T.S. Welcome, Sayer, Pennsylvania. We are thrilled to have you here. Welcome to our growing family here on the radio. I want to begin today's show by talking about some far too early tea leaves and data points about the 2024 presidential race. I see President Biden's at the White House. He's going to be signing the Respect for Marriage Act legislation on the South Lawn momentarily. Big crowd gathered out there, including my husband, who was invited, I think, from the Republican side. There are dozens of Republicans who voted for this bill. In a previous monologue on this program, I explained why I was in favor of the Respect for Marriage Act, even though it's not exactly perfect in every way. I thought on balance it was worthy of support, even though I think it's unnecessary and superfluous due to the Obergefell Supreme Court decision, and it's not going anywhere. If you missed that monologue or you're curious, you can go back and read a pretty lengthy analysis I did at townhall.com recently. You can just Google that piece if you're wondering. That's what President Biden is up to here any minute at the White House, not far from where we're broadcasting here in Washington, D.C. And what we're learning and what we're hearing about from various sources inside the White House and Biden world is that he might be creeping closer to making the decision to actually take the plunge and run for reelection? after all in 2024. I have long been of the belief that he wouldn't. And I still probably, on balance, believe that ultimately he won't. He's 80 years old. He is not a young 80. He is not a spry or terribly cogent 80 a lot of the time. You go two more years down this path, I just don't think he is going to be in better political fighting shape to run a campaign where he can't do the basement thing again, which was his successful strategy against Donald Trump in 2020. However, I will just say, based on a lot of this reporting, that it looks like Maybe the chances that he defies that expectation and goes for it, after all, uh, that likelihood is increasing. I'm still not convinced it's going to happen, but I'm more willing to believe that it might than I have been over the last couple of years. And the reasons basically are that he's feeling emboldened. The White House political team was ebullient on election night last month where Democrats did – a lot better than expected. They still lost the House, but by a small margin, they kept the Senate, ended up gaining a seat in the Senate. On balance, net-net gained governorships. It was one of the most successful midterm elections for an incumbent president in modern American history. So he's feeling like pretty high right now, feeling like the American people in some ways gave him a vote of confidence. I really don't believe that's what the message of the midterms Happened to be. I think a lot of people didn't want to vote for certain types of Republicans, even though they were disappointed with and disapproving of this president's performance and his agenda. So he might be misreading the moment a little bit, but I can understand at least saying, hey, we were expecting to get crushed. We didn't. Maybe we're onto something here. And then, of course, the only announced candidate from either party for 2024. In the presidential race is Donald Trump. And Biden feels like, hey, I've beaten this guy once. I can beat him again. My party is scared of Trump. Maybe they'll give me another shot to go beat him a second time rather than rolling the dice on someone else and making it easier, potentially, if Trump's the nominee for the Republicans to win. I think he wants to run. I think that there have been hesitancies among some of his team, I suspect among members of his family. Some of the new reporting is that the family has now gotten fully on board. I guess we'll see. And maybe the most significant move that I've seen on this whole front is this push from Biden and his team to try to move South Carolina to the front of the pack in the nominating process. I mean, the Democrats screwed the pooch, let's say, in Iowa in 2020. Remember that? The Iowa caucuses, the Republicans did theirs Flawlessly. The Democrats had their crazy system where, to this day, we don't really know who won. I think, like, technically they said it was Pete Buttigieg, but it was such a mess that there's not a lot of confidence in the full accuracy of that final outcome. So there was rumbling about moving the first contest, first in the nation, out of Iowa, maybe out of New Hampshire. Biden's savior state, that cycle, was South Carolina. Jim Clyburn... A heavy African-American population within the Democratic primary electorate that really rose Biden and brought him back from the dead politically and put him on the path to winning the nomination. And the fact that Biden's people are trying to say, let's start now in South Carolina, seems like a thumb on the scale type thing where they want to make sure that if he's going to run for reelection, he would sail to renomination. Now, again, I think it's too early. I don't think any final decision has been made. But if things had gone really badly for the Democrats, as expected by many of us in the midterm elections, I think we'd be looking at a different situation. The knives would be out on the Democratic side. There would be all these stories about Biden and how he really can't get the job done anymore and how they need someone new and fresh leadership and Oh, by the way, here are some leaks from people talking about how he's really slowing down and all that kind of stuff. Instead, it was like, oh, wait, hang on. What just happened here? Are we sure we want to trade horses? I think that's some of the mentality right now. And I think Biden resents the fact that you've got a lot of people saying that he shouldn't run. He's like, hey, I'm the president. I want to keep doing it. Presidents run for reelection. So we'll see. We'll know soon enough. Probably in a matter of months. But a lot of the push that he's making, a lot of his argument here is, I can beat Trump, and we've got to beat Trump again. But what if Trump isn't the Republican nominee? That would change things. We've talked about the Republican underperformance in November. We talked about the data that shows that Trump endorsed Republicans, underperformed by five percentage points, versus other sort of traditional normal Republicans. Non-MAGA quote-unquote Republicans outperformed Trump's numbers on average by six percentage points. Like Trump 20 versus non-MAGA Republicans in 2022, they did six percentage points better on average, whereas the MAGA candidates didn't. So that's one factor at play here. I also direct you to a brand new poll, USA Today in Suffolk. And again, this is, wildly early so all the caveats and grains of salt all apply but there was a question about the 2024 election republican primary and they did a hypothetical head-to-head ron DeSantis, governor of florida former president trump and of course it's not a head-to-head and there'll be more people in the race i think the more people in helps trump but if it came down to two nationally republican and republican leaning voters said their choice was DeSantis 56%, Trump 33%. That is a big gap, 23 points. Now, there's some other polling that show it closer. Some polls have Trump ahead, but this is the latest one from USA Today. DeSantis up 56 to 33 head-to-head against Donald Trump. And within the story, they write, By a 2-to-1 margin, Republican and Republican leaners now say they want Trump's policies, but a different standard bearer to carry them. So kind of Trump, uh, Trumpism, America first, that kind of agenda just with someone else as the champion, someone else as that standard bearer. 31% say they want the former president to run. 61% prefer someone else be the nominee. So that's in the primary way too early. Let's skip ahead a step again, preposterously early. But they're doing general election head-to-heads on hypotheticals. Joe Biden leads Donald Trump by seven points in this poll. 47 for Biden, 40% for Trump. And here's the thing. That's not a completely useless poll because that's a sitting president versus a former president, 100% name ID. Everyone knows Joe Biden and Donald Trump. There's no, like, education factor that has to come in here. We know who they are. They're back-to-back presidents. They ran against each other already. So a rematch is not hard for people to grok. And in this poll, given that choice, it's Biden 47, Trump 40, even though Biden's approval rating is pretty lousy and people aren't thrilled, to put it lightly, with the direction of the country under Biden. But he has a seven point lead over Donald Trump in this poll. By contrast, they did DeSantis versus Biden. DeSantis leads Joe Biden by four points, 47 to 43, where Biden Falls closer to his actual approval rating as opposed to getting a bump by being pitted against Donald Trump. Now, look, DeSantis would get attacked in the primary. His numbers could soften. And in general, I mean, it's a long way off. A lot of people are only somewhat familiar with him. He did post a crazy win in Florida by almost 20 points. That will catch your attention for sure. You know, we're talking about December 2022 right now, polling Almost two years in advance is not terribly helpful, but I think Biden leading Trump by seven is at least something we should pay attention to. And then the DeSantis versus Biden situation, and that's like a, an 11 point swing toward the Republican. Trump to DeSantis. And maybe Republican primary voters are starting to move in that direction. The type of thing that I've been articulating here on the show for a while, which is Trump did a lot of very good things for the country as president. There's a lot of people who voted for him that I know, friends, family, others who voted for him twice enthusiastically, who are just ready for someone new, someone different, someone with less baggage and all this drama and like the backwards looking fixation on 2020. And they're like, hey, let's try to keep some of the good stuff. We're not likely to be in a perfect position or in the best position to win with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket. We've done that already, right? He's squeaked by Hillary, by the skin of his teeth, threading the needle in 2016. Then the Republicans lost in 2018, lost in 2020, and sort of in historical context, kind of lost in 2022 again. The big underperformance. Do they want to keep that going or do they want to win? And if they want to win, you start looking. For other options and other people who might be more successful in that department, because you can't have a Trumpist agenda or an American America first agenda or a conservative agenda if you don't have power, if you don't win elections. So at least in this one survey, big national survey, DeSantis up 23 over Trump head to head, DeSantis leading Joe Biden, Trump trailing significantly outside the margin of error against Joe Biden in a potential rematch. I mean... That definitely is an eyebrow raiser a little bit. And maybe some of those strong conservative Republican voters, even Trump supporters over two elections, they might look at that and say, "Okay, well, since he announced he made this extremely early announcement just after the midterms, which didn't go well, especially for his handpicked candidates. We talked about that five point penalty, as they called it in Nate Cohn's analysis. The New York Times for the Trump endorsed Republicans. Since that very early announcement, even before Thanksgiving, right on the heels of this underperformance, he had the scandal at Mar-a-Lago with this you know, dinner with these bigots, flaming anti-Semites, some folks who had said like the most horrific things you can say, who believe horribly hateful things and espouse those things proudly. And Trump says he didn't know. If that's the case, the people around him failed badly, another concern. So that was one controversy. And then we had you know the, the truth social comments about you know, suspending the Constitution or terminating parts of the Constitution to have a redo election from two elections ago now. Back to 2020, he's still just obsessed. You know, you're talking about terminating the Constitution. Then he said, oh, I didn't really say that. It's all fake news. Just, he, he said it. We have it written down. He wrote it. ...and publish it on his own platform. So, like, the thing that he said, then the gaslighting, it's just... ...I think a lot of people say enough, even if they're inclined to like him. And at least in this poll, USA Today, those numbers are growing. As he's the only announced candidate. So, a lot of very interesting drama on both sides of the aisle. Big decisions ahead. And, of course, we'll be covering all of it, very soon, actually here on The Guy Benson Show. As we are just getting started, stay tuned. So much to get to on today's program. We'll be right back.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
0: I'm Guy Benson. We're back. You know, I was on special report last night with our guest coming up later on, Brett Bayer. We were talking about the Twitter files. And I was just describing the way that these rules were treated. Rules, like, I'm using that generously in quotes. Twitter is this Calvin ball where the rules would change on whims based on outcomes that they wanted. This little small cabal of mostly leftist people. It's kind of exactly what we had always said was happening at Twitter, and we were assured, no, 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 that's not the case. And the journalists, for the most part, just parroted whatever Twitter said. And now we're learning some of those inner workings, what was happening behind the scenes because of these files being released by Elon Musk to a number of journalists, independent journalists. So two of them who have been leading the way on this are Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss. And we've been discussing them, of course, here on the show. It's newsworthy. I know a lot of people in the mainstream press Want to pretend like it's just nothing. It's a nothing burger. It's some weird fixation over on the right. There's just so much gaslighting happening within the news media on this because I think they know they're complicit, frankly. And they're just defending the tribe as they so often do. But the Washington Post, in talking about this and writing about this, they describe Taibbi and Weiss as, quote, conservative writers, which is just wrong. They are not conservatives. They aren't far-left liberals in every way. They aren't going with, like, the tribal party line. So I guess that made them, in the headspace of the Washington Post editorial process, conservatives. There's a lot of blowback. They ended up changing it, putting an editor's note. But I think that's just a revealing use of that word.
2: talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
0: We are back here on the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday from Washington, D.C. in the Tony Snow Studios. Glad to have you all along taking a look at the markets right now. We'll bring you a final number at the top of the hour, but the Dow is up over 150 points. It was kind of bouncing around a little bit, around the kind of flat range, down then up just slightly after... Decent, slightly better than expected inflation numbers that came out earlier today, 7.1 percent inflation year over year, month over month, up but not by as much as people had expected. So maybe there's this hope that inflation has actually finally peaked. I know that's been predicted wrongly many times, especially by the team at the White House who are trying to wish that into existence Uh, wasn't really happening. Of course, there was another indication of inflation a number that came out a few days ago that was worse than expected. So toward the end of the closing day, what, 25 minutes left to go or so till the closing bell, it looks like uh, the Dow is up, maybe gaining some steam. But there are still concerns out there, obviously, about both the question of inflation and that issue, and then when you kind of nuke the economy with inflation chemotherapy, Do you then get a recession where people lose their jobs and the economy contracts for at least back-to-back quarters? Does that happen again? Is there a double-dip recession on the horizon? I think that's one of the questions that a lot of people are trying to puzzle through. We ask our smart guests about it all the time because I think it's top of mind for a lot of folks. And, in fact, we have Susan Lee coming up later on in the show in our next hour, and we will ask her about what she's seeing in these inflation numbers as well. We plan on doing so with the congressman who is due here any moment, Congressman Kevin Brady of Texas, who is the outgoing Ways and Means Committee ranking member for the Republicans in the lower chamber, not outgoing because he's losing the gavel. In fact, he'd be gaining the gavel if he were sticking around. But as we've discussed with the congressman previously, he is just about to retire. He made the decision to walk away from politics. He's been in D.C., For 26 years as a congressman, 13 terms, and now the Republicans gaining that majority back, Uh, he would be running that very powerful influential committee. But he said it's time to uh, hand the ball off to someone else, and he's just weeks away from retirement, and he does join us now. Congressman Kevin Brady, it's great to have you back.
4: Hey, Guy, thanks for having me. I apologize about the technical glitch.
0: Oh, no worries. We're glad to have you here. I was just talking about the inflation numbers today, a little bit better than expected in some ways. I see President Biden is still misleading about it, saying that uh, wages increased more than inflation. That, that's still not the case. It's still a net pay cut for the American people. But at least a little bit of movement in the right direction, unlike another measure earlier in the week. What's your read on the inflation problem right now?
4: Yeah, so, look, inflation eased a bit, but remember, the president a year ago said inflation had peaked, Yet it it rose after that, and right now at over 7%. uh, What we're seeing is groceries are still just crushingly high, about 12% increase year-over-year. Housing rents are at the highest uh, increase since we've recorded it. That's really tough on families. And so uh, look, um, American families are are maxing out the credit cards. Uh, They're skipping meals, delaying their retirement. Household wealth has declined for the third consecutive quarter already this year. So a good point to your point. I just saw a new report literally minutes ago from the Joint Economic Committee uh, that said uh, the average American household will pay an extra $9,000 a year in the coming year because of President Biden's inflation over the last two. So $9,000 is just, again, another really cruel uh, gift to be given at uh, at the the holidays. Yeah,
0: it's just brutal for American families. I want to ask you about this sort of flurry of activity that always seems to happen right at the very end of the calendar year on Capitol Hill. And people like us here in the media, especially in D.C., we start using terms like omnibus and Continuing resolution and cliffs and sequestration and all of it, and there's a lot of shouting and finger pointing, and then often what happens is there's some sort of temporary fix or you know deeply imperfect resolution that really makes no one totally happy, and it's not satisfactory to anyone involved, but they get past it and we move on. Uh, how do you see it this year in terms of the spending questions ahead of this Congress – of course, it'll be a new Congress next year, uh, a new sheriff in town, new speaker in town, uh, split government for the first time in two years. What's on the agenda here in these waning weeks, and what do you expect to see actually happen?
4: Yeah, guys, it's a great question. So I really think in the lame duck, you know, do no harm, uh, certainly on the economy or to the budget. I worry that they may be – Democrats may be proposing a year-long spending spree with an 8 an percent increase in – in non-emergency um, spending, which would be higher than inflation. So I, I don't want us to see uh, uh, Congress go on another spending spree while we're still fighting to get inflation down. But funding the government is the number one and probably the, the, the top priority for Congress. There's some other things we can do. For example, in, in my space, there are some of the Three provisions from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that are inc- uh, incredibly important for Main Street businesses and for companies that do research and development and do it here in America. These these three provisions cost very little, but they have a huge bang for the buck in the economy, we're hoping we can reach some common ground with Democrats there. But they're looking for, you know, hundreds of billions of more spending on the child tax credit. So you know, we'll see if we can find a balanced package. Same thing on trade in health healthcare. I think there's some basic, urgent, bipartisan measures that don't cost much that we should be able to do. But again, um, negotiations aren't going as well, quite as well as I would like, because some are looking for a big blowout package. And I think narrow and necessary is what we should be doing right now.
0: Is that what we'll get, though? Because I know that there's a split view among Republicans. Some of them are saying, hey, let's not really pass anything, maybe like a little punt into next year, then we control the purse strings and we can sort of reshape this thing and have a big fight with the Democrats. Others are saying, you know, let's just get this over with now. We've negotiated stuff, and who knows how functional the majority is going to be for the Republicans next year, razor thin in both chambers. Let's just do this before the year's out uh, rather than pushing into this uncertain future. Where do you come down on that?
4: You know, my my belief is that on January um, 3rd, you know, the power purse of the purse for the government uh, will be shared by Republicans and Democrats. That is a, a rare opportunity for us to really start to peel back and have leverage over executive actions, over regulations that are punishing families and the economy as well. And so I'd like to see us sooner rather than later get a chance to put our uh, our, our fingerprint on the budget. There is an argument that we can pass a year-long funding um, measure and then come back as Republicans and make changes on border security, on national defense, on crime, on issues like that. So, you know, there is there is a kind of a thoughtful split among what's the best way to go. The, the, the biggest thing for me is let's not make inflation worse or grow the government more hastily in this lane duck
0: let's talk about the next congress you will not be a part of it you're going to be retiring but you've been around the block you've seen a lot of these leadership fights through the years kevin mccarthy is the republican minority leader he is sort of the front runner for speaker of the house but he doesn't have the votes and republicans generally don't really have the votes uh, or too many of them to play with in terms of a margin for error i haven't really seen anyone presented as a viable alternative to Kevin McCarthy. I know he's got, you know, at least one backbencher who's going to be challenging him more symbolic, I would say, than anything else. But, you know, if he can't get those votes and it goes to multiple ballots, it could get a little bit ugly. I think the likelihood that Democrats somehow end up with a Speaker of the House, I know some people say, oh, it could be a Democratic Speaker. That's not going to happen when a Republican majority, it will be a Republican Speaker. But how do you expect to see this go down? And do you think some of the people who are, kind of refusing to go along with McCarthy, will eventually throw in the towel and vote for him? Or is there there's someone else maybe waiting in the wings who could satisfy more people? What's your read on that?
4: Yeah, I really think the focus is on Kevin McCarthy, and I think he's making progress to unite everybody. We we will have, rep- Republicans will have, a majority about the same size as Speaker Pelosi had. And so it's going to be crucial for us to unite, just as she and Democrats did, to bring that pro-growth, pro-family, pro-security agenda, get it get it moving. So the sooner we do that guy, the better. I, I, I'm i convinced he is the right person for Speaker. He has certainly earned the chance to prove himself as Speaker because of his leadership these last four years. He's having good discussions with with the conference. I'm hopeful that on January 3rd he has the votes to go forward because we're, yeah, we're just, just chomping at the bits. We're chomping at it the bit to get going.
0: It's up in the air, though. Like, it's no guarantee that he's got the votes, and it looks like it's already kind of this messy process playing out. And if that's the very first vote that Republicans are going to be taking, they can't even agree on their own leader, I mean, it's just going to fuel the conversations. And I know you've heard them on your way out the door. Like, is this very slim Republican majority the exact same size, actually, as the Democratic majority uh, after 2020, are they going to be able to really do anything of importance moving forward because, you know, Pelosi, say what you will about her, she gets her ducks in a row, she gets her troops in line, even if she's marching them off the cliff, they march basically to her drummer. They'll squeal, they're complaining sometimes, but ultimately they have the votes to do what they need to do out of that house, even with a very small majority. The Republicans are a little bit more, you know, unwieldy as a party less willing to fall in line for leadership. Uh, And there are some folks wondering, will this even be, you know, it'll be a majority certainly, and the Democrats won't be able to pass their agenda. But will the Republicans realistically be able to do much of anything if you've got a certain group of Republicans who kind of just don't want to go with the program ever? Uh, What do you think about that? I think it's a fair question to ask.
4: Yeah, I I think it'd be a terrible mistake if we've just got a few who just say no to be no, in, in blocked agenda. The truth of the matter is uh America needs to change in a big way. They're, they're need, we, we've got to get this country back on the track on track. We've got the right solutions to do it, guy. We just need, I think, to unite behind uh leader McCarthy. And then the power that you do have is crucial because one, just just being the majority blocks President Biden's very radical legislative agenda. Secondly, now sharing the power of the purse gives you a chance to address executive actions and overreach in the regulations that they promote. But the most important thing is we've got to move our ideas so the American public ahead of the presidential election sees what this country can do for working families, for Main Street businesses. So it's really these are really important um, powers to have. And the sooner we get behind uh, the speaker and move that, I think the better we are. Yeah,
0: with so little margin for error, they've got to have their act together to do it, and I guess that's an open question about what that's going to look like in the coming weeks. Uh, Quickly, if we look at the election that just happened a few weeks ago, Republicans in Texas did pretty well, really well in other places like Ohio and Iowa and, of course, Florida, but not so well a lot of other places. Some key races went the wrong way. Everyone basically agreeing this was not the cycle that it could or should have been for the Republicans. Why do you think – there was an underperformance, broadly speaking, by the Republicans in such a favorable environment.
4: Yeah, it was it was disappointing. There's no question about it, and 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 it's a little puzzling in the sense that the results were so um, inconsistent. We won in states like New York, New Jersey, California, even the, the the West Coast that they told us we would never win seats again. We did very well. Florida, Texas, obviously. Uh, as well. But in other states, we didn't get the wins. Even Arizona did well, um, didn't get the wins. I think one thing that's overlooked, because people are talking turnout and the Dobbs decision and this and that, but I noticed that in many of those House races, uh, they were strong Biden territory, and we felt we had a good chance to win. But Gallup spent uh, about seven to one in many of those key races, and you can have the best candidates in the world and it's just a tsunami. So it hasn't got much attention yet. But I'm starting to notice that um, we we got hammered on on some of the fundraising in these key races and that may, yeah, may as have part made a minor difference, two or three points. Well, it
0: also doesn't help if you have flawed candidates also getting massively massively outspent, which was the case, especially in some of those Senate races that uh, ended up going the Democrats way and not a single incumbent senator from either party lost. It's something that will be discussed and dissected, I think, for a long time and highly relevant to 2024 and the types of choices that GOP voters have to make heading into that cycle. We referenced that at the top of the show here today. Finally, Congressman, it is your last appearance here as a sitting member of Congress on this show. You are headed to a happy retirement. We are wishing you very happy trails. We have a minute or two left here. As you look ahead to the next chapter of your life, what are you most excited about and what do you think you will miss the
4: most? Well, there's no question. I'll miss the people and the policies. I, I, I love one. Well, I still love my job. I'm not disheartened. In fact, I think we're going to be able to turn this country around, get it back on track. And the people that I work with, I'll just tell you the quality, the character, the principles, exactly what you want. Um, so I'm optimistic. Um, I'm going to miss uh those economic issues, taxes and trade, the economy, health care, you know, energy issues that I really care about. I'm hopeful. I don't know what the future holds. You know, we've put off anyone who wants to talk about in the next year after my term is over. But I hope it's in those policy areas that that matter and, uh, and certainly have mattered to me. And probably the hugest blessing, obviously, getting a chance from Texas to lead the Ways and Means Committee to work with President Trump on the tax cuts that have really changed the trajectory of the economy and changed trajectory of a lot of Americans' lives, that, that's that's something I'm very proud of.
0: Yeah. And of course, in this new period of your life, you'll be back home in Texas a lot more with your family and your friends. And that's got to be uh, the positive side here of stepping away from Washington, D.C. and some of the craziness and rancor that happens here. Congressman Kevin Brady of Texas, the ranking member for now on the House and the House rather Ways and Means Committee. We've always appreciated having you here, Congressman, and just Many blessings in your retirement, and Merry Christmas to you and your family.
4: Guy, thank you so much. And, again, it's just been a joy to be on with you, and thanks for all you do.
0: Thank you. That means a lot. Kevin Brady on The Guy Benson Show. With that, we will step aside. Back right after this.
2: Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show.
0: Back on The Guy Benson Show. We've now done a little bit of looking ahead to 2024 here on the show today, but I'm here to tell you that finally and officially, the book is closed on the 2022 election, right? We knew that the congressional outcome was over, what was it, last week, when they finally called a race, I would say belatedly in California. I think it was the 13th district in California. We mentioned that there was an automatic recount in Colorado, Lauren Boebert, In a pretty Republican district, got a big scare. I think voters made it a lot closer than Republicans wanted it to be, I think, given her style in Washington, D.C. But she did hang on by a couple of hundred votes. I want to say like five or six hundred votes. Her opponent had conceded, but the Associated Press had not. The journalists were still hanging on on this one. So that recount was triggered by law automatically. They did the recount. It was a net gain of, I think, four votes For her opponent, so she has officially won as well. That's over. And I'm very pleased to tell you that California, as of yesterday, has finally finished their vote count. Thirty-four days after the election, California finished their vote count with an assembly district going to a Republican by eighty-five votes. That was the last outstanding race. They're finally done. Took them more than a month to count. What a joke. Another hour of the Guy Benson show coming up with Brett Bayer next.
2: Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative. Guy
0: Benson Show. A brand new hour on The Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, podcast, always free, on demand. No charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram at GuyBensonShow. Fox News Alert. The Dow closing up 105 points today, off session highs, but better than session lows as well. Decent inflation report earlier. We'll talk to Susan Lee about that later on. The Dow closing the day at 34,110. Meanwhile, we're keeping our eye on this event on the South Lawn at the White House. President Biden, with those aviator sunglasses currently speaking, he's about to sign the Respect for Marriage Act into law as expected. And I did some commentary on that a little bit earlier in the show. By the way, that market update that I just gave you on the Dow sponsored by our friends at Americans for Prosperity, committed to empowering every American to realize their American dream by being champions of policies that expand freedom and opportunity. Find out more at americansforprosperity.org. With me here in studio in Washington, D.C., it's Brett Bayer, chief political anchor at Fox News, anchor of Special Report, every weeknight at 6 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel, author of a bunch of best-selling books, most recently To Rescue the Republic, He's at Brett Bayer on Twitter. And, Brett, it's great to see you. Good to see you. Merry Christmas to you and you your too. family. You too. So, uh, we were talking about this briefly on the panel last night on your show. And. We're at that most wonderful time of the year Mm -hmm. where we sit here and talk about sequestration and omnibus and continuing resolution. I know. Most people's eyes glaze over. Totally. And then everyone eventually goes home after a lot of yelling and screaming and no one's happy, but they get something done. Is that what's going to happen? Basically. Okay. Yeah.
5: And so lawmakers, they start to smell the – Fuel from the airplanes yeah. that are fueling Christmas cookies. up, yeah. That they're they're getting out of town, and it's just another fiscal cliff. And there's a lot that gets jammed in. Now, Republicans may say this is the dirty little secret. They may say, you know what, we just won. We want to have leverage. We want to do the budget ourselves when we take control of the gavel and the House major- majority. But the bottom line is that they don't mind a continuing resolution. Uh, an omnibus spending bill, rather, that takes it all the way to September thirtieth because then they don 't have to fight with a democratic Senate on this issue and immediately immediately i mean they 're going to eventually when they come up with their own budget right. they go through the process but It gives them some breathing room to do other things. That's the dirty little secret. The other dirty little secret is that there are retiring senators, Republicans and Democrats, who have a lot of stuff in this omnibus bill, whether it's an airport somewhere or a something, something. Uh And they're leaving Congress and they want to say to their constituents,
0: look what I've done. So
5: and so's.
0: Yeah. Uh, No, I think that's right. We just had Kevin Brady. On the show, uh, probably for the last time as a sitting member of Congress, very influential guy for many years in this Man, town, especially
5: when it comes to budget. Absolutely.
0: A hundred percent of the tax cuts. I mean, he's has fingerprints all over that from from the Trump administration. We I just saw I'm pretty sure Kevin McCarthy walked past the studio minutes ago and I asked Brady, first of all, is he going to be speaker? Does he a, is he going to get those votes eventually? And let's say he is a speaker with that gavel. Will this be a majority that's functional in any sort of meaningful way? Kevin Brady said he was hopeful on both of those fronts, but that wasn't really all that definitive from him. As someone who studies this stuff and covers it all the time, Brett, I, you know, I don't know. I, I would guess Kevin McCarthy will be the Speaker of the House, but there are some people who are recalcitrant in the caucus who just don't want to say yes to that. And then if they're already struggling just to pick their leader, are they going to get much done?
5: Right. So on the first question, whether McCarthy gets it or doesn't get it, currently he does not have the votes. And heading in, a lot of people say, you know, maybe he's going to get them. He's going to twist some arms. He's going to turn some folks. He's got some primary, you know, some uh, big-time people like Jim Jordan and Scalise, at least publicly saying that, he, that McCarthy should be Speaker. But it's not a done deal yet. And if you look back at the other Republican speakers most recently, Paul Ryan, Denny Hastert, John Boehner, none of those men went in thinking they were going to be Speaker. There was somebody else that was in line. And these are the second guys on the other ballot. Um, so it's historic that you, if they don't have the votes, they go to somebody else pretty quick.
0: We'll see. It could be very interesting drama and like the first big dysfunctional mess of a new majority or technical majority or maybe not. Maybe he gets, you know, the, the votes whipped. That's going to be a big challenge on the speakership. But then everything else as well. Pelosi, another, Pelosi was great at it.
5: Yeah, there's another possibility, and that is that some Republican manages to be this alternative candidate who actually gets Democrats to vote for him or her. And it becomes some conciliatory kind of speaker that that would throw Republican conservatives into a tizzy. But it's a possibility because it just comes down to numbers.
0: I think that's probably the threat that the McCarthy people would use against the Freedom Caucus guys who might not be willing to go with McCarthy. They want someone more conservative. So just wait. Do you want me or do you want all the Democrats and a handful of Republicans picking a very moderate Republican? Right. Uh, We'll be watching that. I don't know if you saw this. We opened the show last hour with this new USA Today Suffolk poll about 2024. It's ludicrously early, all the caveats and everything. But I thought of all the numbers that stuck out to me, it was Biden 47, Trump 40 in a rematch. That's meaningful because everyone knows those two guys. It's just the current president, the last president, everyone knows who they are. Biden leading by seven points if it were to happen again. If you put DeSantis in on the Republican side, he's up by four head-to-head against Joe Biden, and he's up against Trump head-to-head, which is not how primaries work. But if it were to be two guys, a two-man race, basically, for the Republican nomination in this survey, DeSantis was up by 23 points over Donald Trump. That's at least going to raise some eyebrows and get some attention here and sort of within hardcore Republican political circles.
5: I think so, too. Um, I think that, you know, there is a palpable change in Trump supporters even that, uh, more and more you hear the line, I really love Trump policies, you know, and then it stops. Um, so a they, but. Yeah. They would like somebody else to take the Trump policies, it sounds like. Uh, and we have a poll coming out next week. Here we go with polls again. But we had actually put a pretty good track record last time around. Yeah, Fox, and, Fox um, polling. And uh, I, I should point out Suffolk is a good organization. We, we use them. Um, so – Listen, I think the writing's on the wall that there is some – there's a change in the force when it comes to Trump supporters and to Republicans overall. How that looks going forward, what it means if a bunch of people get in the race in the primary, you know, we're going to find that out probably I don't think until April uh, where you start getting people really throwing their hat in the ring besides the former president. Well, yeah,
0: that was my next question because Trump did – it. I think he had in mind the Republicans are going to do great in the midterms. I want to claim credit for it. I'm going to announce immediately and try to freeze out the field and suck up all the oxygen and money and then go running. And it hasn't really worked out that way. The election didn't go the way Republicans wanted it to. It especially didn't go for Trump-backed candidates the way he expected that to go. And then he announced with minimal fanfare and minimal attention before even Thanksgiving had rolled around. And it's just been, you know, the the dinner with Kanye and those other horrible guys and then You know, let's terminate parts of the Constitution. And he's been putting out these angry things about Ron DeSantis, who's just saying zero things about it and doing his work down in Florida. It just feels like whatever the strategy was here for the rollout in the first few months, whether you are rooting hard for Trump or rooting hard against Trump, I don't think this is probably what they had drawn up as their ideal scenario.
5: Yeah, no way. And I'm not sure they had it drawing of an ideal scenario, I think it's it's kind of (laughs) winging it. But I do agree with you that I think that they thought and the former president thought that that was going to be riding a crest of a wave of Republicans, you know, taking over control of both chambers. And he would say, here I come, you know, this is, you know, I'm I'm going to capitalize. Let's do it again.
0: Do you think the way things have gone these last weeks allows more people maybe to hang back and wait longer rather than jumping in immediately and we're talking about, you know, the primary fight instantly in 2023?
5: Definitely. I think there's a lot more waiting and seeing um, and a lot more courting, I think, of big donors, of of people around the country. Um, You know, DeSantis has it kind of baked in the cake. He's got a shtick. His his pitch is, I want to make America Florida. It fits on the bumper sticker. He's got a brand. I think he's going to do the the governor thing, and you're going to see things that stir the pot on a number of different issues. He just said he's going to ask for this grand jury to look into COVID vaccines. He said we need
0: a counter CDC. And the
5: impact of things. I mean, that'll be attractive for, you know, a a branch of the Republican Party. Um, And it'll get attention, but there'll be others.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And the question is, how many others? How soon? All of that. We'll be covering it fully at Fox News. I would imagine there might be discussions already underway about debates. I know it's so soon to be talking about it, but what summer twenty twenty three? Oh yeah,
5: I think it'll start earlier than we think. Um, I think that well, we're definitely you know already discussing those things.
0: There we go. Not surprised. Uh, Brett Bayer, of course, chief political anchor here at the network, deeply involved in all of that coverage upcoming. Meanwhile, Brett, before we go, we're getting closer and closer to Christmas. It's, what, the 13th here. Uh, What do you guys do in your family at Christmas? Are there... Bear family traditions that you hold near and dear, or you sort of mix it up?
5: We mix it up. We've late, lately been going to Florida, so it's a different dynamic. You know, you're not getting a white Christmas down down in uh, Florida, but it has been, uh, we do something athletic We're on understand Christmas that so you're getting
0: a free Christmas. You're getting a free Christmas. Right? Li- Liberty late <laughs> Christmas <laughs> yeah. in the free state of Florida. We do
5: some kind of uh, activity as a family, uh, much like we do on Thanksgiving, like a turkey trot or a... Or Christmas run or something that starts off the day, um, and then uh, we usually play golf as a family
0: on Christmas Day. Yes, that is extremely on brand. Yes, it is on brand. <laughs> it's very on brand. <laughs> now, well, hang on though, but we we skipped ahead. Christmas Eve is often like our biggest traditions are all Christmas Eve. Definitely, that's Christmas what ours day is. is. Sort of like, ah.
5: no, no. Ours is the big dinner on Christmas Eve, and then the handing of gifts on Christmas Eve.
0: Do You do one each, or do, you do the whole gifts?
5: We do one each. Yeah,
0: that's what we do too. Yeah, we go out to dinner Christmas Eve. As do we. There we go. Yeah, and then I want uh,
5: my wife makes dinner reservations. She uh, <laughs> she does not makes dinner. I dot, mean, you've dot, talked dot, to dot. Amy. She, yeah, she she, she makes some sometimes things.
0: making quality reservations <laughs> is taking one for the team. That's right. Right, and you, you know your strengths and your lack of strength in certain areas, and you have a good meal. That's right. And then it's a big uh, Christmas day, and then do you then. Try to take a bunch of time off I, i'd imagine you got to like recharge the batteries here because it's going to be a crazy sprint for you and Martha and the core team now almost maybe not immediately in January but pretty yeah. shortly thereafter
5: I'll take some time over the holidays, but i'll also do my show here and there um, and try to free up uh some folks here so they can take
0: vacation too. Are you a hard person to get gifts for i'd imagine you might be
5: um yeah, you know, I'm not a big gift fan. Like, I'm okay. You know, I've got stuff. <laughs> I, I think, you know, a, a dozen golf balls is really up my alley. Uh-huh. It's you an know, easy one. It's an easy one. Um, but I like experiences. I like experience gifts. Like, you're going to do something. Memories. Memories. Yeah. That's the stuff.
0: I tend to be right there with you. And uh, we just so appreciate... First of all, you having me on the panel as often as you do, it means a well, lot. You're great. Uh, it's it's a great. And congrats for me. on
5: uh, sticking around.
0: Thank you. The new team. We're deal. lucky to have you. I'm relieved. I think you know <laughs> the feeling. It's like, all right, it's done. Let's get back to work. Uh, but we always appreciate it. And also, you coming on this show means a lot. Have a great family, Amy and the boys. Uh, it's just great to see you, Brett. Merry Christmas. You too. That's Brett Bayer, our guest here on the Guy Benson Show. As we are underway in our middle hour, so much more to get to. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. Some sad news out of the college sports world today. Mike Leach, longtime college football coach, head coach of three programs, died at the age of 61, very young. Complications from a heart condition is what we are told. He was the current coach at Mississippi State for the Bulldogs in the Southeastern Conference. Before that, he was at Washington State and Texas Tech. He was the pioneer and sort of the mad genius behind the famous air raid offense. At Texas Tech putting up ludicrous numbers of points 21 years as a head coach in college football amassing a win-loss record of 158 and 107 right around 500 in bowl appearances big 12 coach of the year in 2008 coach of the year in the Pac-12 in 2015 and he just had a bunch of accolades he was also a very fascinating character he was an attorney by trade actually he had a law degree i think from pepperdine if memory serves and then he was this creative genius in college football generally offense minded and widely beloved within the sport and he was a memorable quote machine you think of senator john kennedy from louisiana I think Mike Leach was kind of like the equivalent of Senator Kennedy among college football coaches. With his quips and his one-liners, here's a little montage. For example, cut 20.
6: Coach, I know you have strong thoughts on weddings. Go elope. Trust me on that. That's a good win. There's a lot of people. It's like Woodstock, except everybody's got their clothes on. We're like one of the most constipated offenses on earth. I think candy corn's awful. You know,
0: It's like fruitcake. I hope there's Bigfoot. I don't think there is. He just had lots of little pearls and gems of wisdom through the years. That first clip was about weddings, and he famously offered more thoughts on that subject in another interview back in 2017. This went viral. Cut 19.
6: The women lose their mind. Your fiancé's going to lose her mind. Your mother-in-law is going to lose her mind. Your mom is going to lose her mind. Several of your sisters and uh, female relatives are going to lose their mind. And, um, and they're, going to, they're going to barrage you with constant questions. What should we wear? And then, uh, which, of course, my answer was, I don't care. And then uh, what color should the invitations be? I don't care. Uh, what should we have for dessert? I don't care. Should we seat this this way or that that way? I don't care. But see, I don't care is not satisfactory at all. Take the groomsmen out so you make sure that they march in just right and they know exactly, you know, these swell outfits that you picked out or whatever, however you're doing it. Um, And in the end, you'll wish you eloped. Uh
0: (laughs) So uh, just a classic quote there. And. This was very shocking news to a lot of people. Mike Leach passing away at age 61, so the search will be on at Mississippi State to replace him. I think as a personality, he is irreplaceable. Dan, I know you worked in Sports Talk Radio, Dan Patrick, for a long time on that show. Did you ever get to meet or talk to Mike Leach? Because he was kind of one of a kind.
7: I never got to meet him in person, but he would come on the show on the phone, and you know, sometimes I would answer the phone. And he was just such a great personality to talk to. And him being interviewed by Dan Patrick was great. And you look on Twitter now today and just the outpouring love from reporters, from coaches that worked with him, from everyone, from players, they just love the guy. He, like you said, he's a great personality, and he will absolutely be missed in the college football world.
0: Yeah, it's just a really sad story. He was someone who would put a smile on my face, and I would just kind of find myself rooting for his teams just because of him. And his personality and his sense of humor. So our heart goes out to everyone in his family and his friends and the whole Mississippi State community down there in Starkville and everyone who was a fan of Mike Leach, who passed away at the age of 61, far too young. As I said, complications from a heart condition is what we are told. May he rest in peace. On that note, we will take a break. We will come back. Susan Lee joins us from Fox Business Network. As soon as we return, it is The Guy Benson Show.
2: Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
0: Halfway through today's edition of the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free. And we are pleased to welcome back to the Airwaves, Susan Lee, Fox Business Network correspondent. And Susan, it's great to have you here.
1: Thank you, Guy. And thank you so much for staying with Fox for the next few years. Congratulations. Oh,
0: thank you very much. Thrilled about that. I mentioned it last week. New deal, multi-year, very happy to be here. Happy to remain your colleague for the foreseeable future. Susan, let's talk about a couple pieces of news breaking today. One is this CPI number on inflation. It was better, still bad. The numbers are not good, but easing a bit, therefore getting better. This coming on the heels of a worse than expected inflation number earlier in the week. Just give us some insight into the inflation picture right now.
1: So you're right. Seven percent higher. That's how much you're paying today versus last year. Not great overall, but still that's better than eight percent, which is close to that 40 year high in terms of consumer prices and inflation that we've been talking about now when you look at the month-over-month month picture, and that's kind of what Wall Street focuses on, meaning where's the direction that we're going? It's going in the right direction, meaning that it only prices only rose 0.1%, which is pretty much nothing. It was almost flat, and it was three times less than anticipated. And that's kind of how Wall Street gauges the direction of consumer prices and where we're going from here. And as you know, the Wall Street and the stock markets, they tend to guess what will happen in six to nine months out. And they're saying right now that if inflation is trending lower again not great if you're paying seven percent more but the direction is lower that's positive especially if the fed the federal reserve the central bank doesn't have to raise interest rates as aggressively
0: president biden was asked about when prices might finally get back to normal and hit close to the target that the fed has here's his reaction from earlier cut 18
1: can you say when you expect prices to get back to normal mr president
0: I hope by the end of next year we're much closer. But I can't make that prediction.
4: I just that no convinced they're not going to go up. I'm convinced they're going to continue
0: All right. So he said he can't make the prediction, but he thinks they're not going to go up and is hopeful that we'll get back to normal prices by the end of next year, 2023. I mean, it's hard to sort of gauge what credibility is attached to that type of comment because we've heard from this president and his team now – Over many months, that inflation had peaked various times and they were wrong. Of course, they were wrong about inflation being transitory, then not really that bad. So they've made a bunch of statements that have turned out not to be correct. Obviously, we all hope that this is true. But I think we need a lot more evidence before we feel confident about it. Does that sound fair?
1: And what is normal anymore when it comes to inflation? We're so used to these six, seven, eight percent price increases. So most economists do expect inflation to come down. Even Janet Yellen herself and the Federal Reserve expect prices to come down, but we're still in that three, three and a half range. You know, the Fed has a target of two percent. So still higher and hotter than their own internal. Benchmarks. And so that means we are expecting higher interest rates. And when you have to raise rates as quickly as they have this year, you're already 4% higher. Today, than you were at the start of this year. And that is the steepest rate that we've seen since the 1980s when you and I weren't around then. Um, But when you have to raise interest rates so sharply, that also means you're slowing growth. You're basically slamming on the brakes. And you heard Janet Yellen in that 60 Minutes interview this weekend saying that it could be avoidable. I would say that Wall Street says it's probably baked into the cars that we're going to get a recession, which is back to back two quarters of negative growth. And that means job losses. And you're already seeing that. Heading into the holidays, Pepsi's cutting jobs, Goldman Sachs announcing today. I mean, the list goes on and on. Meta is cutting 11,000, Amazon's cutting 10,000 jobs in the holiday shopping period, right, Guy?
0: Yeah, which is not a great sign. So I think, unfortunately, there's more pain to come. The question is, how much pain, for whom, and how protracted will the pain be, both on inflation and on the consequences of recession, such as unemployment and job losses? Meanwhile, Susan Lee... A flurry of news on this FTX crypto scandal just in the last, what, 12, 18 hours. A lot of people were focused on whether this guy was going to show up virtually for a hearing today on Capitol Hill. Well, then last night I was on a special report on the panel. We had a different topic and then the news broke that he had been arrested in the Bahamas. I've been going nuts. This guy's like cooling his heels in the Bahamas at some mansion after all these billions had disappeared, he was doing this media tour, getting a lot of questions and even some rounds of applause from audience. It was just this surreal thing to watch, and it seemed like the, the fantasy might have finally come to an end. He's been arrested. We'll see what this indictment picture looks like and extradition probably on the table. Looks like there are eight federal charges now coming down against this founder of FTX. Just walk us through what's just happened and the significance of these events.
1: Well, the Southern District of New York, the Attorney General, just held a press conference, just reading through some of the headlines. It seems like they're also alleging that SBS, Sam Bankman-Frey, founder of SBX, also made illegal campaign donations, which the Southern District says totals in the tens of millions of dollars. Now, we know that, but he funneled about $75 million into super PACs. You have Democratic donations. Some of that might be clawed back, especially as we still have $8 billion in client funds that are still missing. So the allegations are, if you look at the Southern District filing, also the SEC, this morning, Securities Exchange Commission, they're alleging... A lot of fraud, wire fraud, securities fraud, also money laundering. I saw it was one of the charges uh, from the um, district attorney there. Now, extradition, I think, is going to take some time because we were reporting just an hour ago that U.S. Marshals are not involved. We know Sam Bankman-Fried, he still wants that extradition trial in that uh, court case right now in the Bahamas. And that means it's going to take some time to actually get the hearing I guess, get the uh, the resolution and then bring it here to stand trial in the U.S. But these allegations are very clear and they're very common, meaning that Sam bankman freed FTX. They, they, how do I put it? They defrauded users who put their money into FTX to trade, buy and sell Bitcoin and Ethereum. And they funneled those client funds, which should have been in the bank, by the way, to their own personal hedge funds and lost that money on bad bets.
0: I'm happy that he's been arrested. I'm hoping that this process plays out relatively quickly and he can't just cling on in some Bahamian jail or even out on bond or something. But you know, the charges are great, and you know, let's, let's see them proven, and I would be very happy to see this guy go away for a long time given what he's allegedly done. But I think a lot of Americans, because we're all kind of united in disgust and anger about what happened, they are wondering how did it even get to this point? How was there so little oversight and so few sort of, I don't know, red flags about this whole operation? And some of the allegations and speculation is because he was greasing the skids with so many politicians with all these donations, they were like, hey, this guy's funding our campaigns. That's great. Let's not really look too hard. And if there are people alleging fraud, as they were months ago, they were willing to maybe look the other way for political reasons. I think that we're just starting to scratch the surface maybe, Susan, on some of this stuff
1: i absolutely agree with you because it seems like day after day there's contagion in the crypto markets You know, given that FTX at its peak was worth $32 billion, and he was really investing billions of dollars, whether or not that was illegally gotten into different companies across the sector. So there is a lot of concern about who's next to fall and go bankrupt. But I would agree with you. It's a burgeoning, obviously, ecosystem. It's a burgeoning industry. You heard Jamie Dimon last week, of course, the famous and very powerful banker, J.P. Morgan, calling crypto tokens pet rocks. But he does believe in the underlying technology of blockchain meaning peer to peer lending so guy can send susan money without having to clear banks for 2 days there is there are a lot of use cases for that but i'll tell you that obviously you know so do you have confidence shaken in the industry Binance, which is one of the largest and now the largest cryptocurrency exchange in the world, which actually started this bank run and exposed FTX, they had $1.2 billion of money taken off the exchange just in the last 24 hours on concern that they might be the next FTX. But I think there there's a $1 trillion asset class in Bitcoin. Ethereum. That's not going away in cryptocurrency. No, it's not $3 trillion as it was a year ago. But the bets are that once we get past this, it'll take a few years, maybe five to ten, to recover. But there are future use cases for this type of technology and cryptocurrency.
0: Susan Lee, Fox Business Network correspondent, our guest here on The Guy Benson Show. Susan, really appreciate it. Thanks so much. We'll talk again soon.
1: Thank you, Guy. Have a great day.
0: You too. And The Guy Benson Show will be right back after this short break.
2: Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
0: Back on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. There's a story published in the Washington Post that I want to read from. The headline is A Desperate Road Trip to Remind America About Its Afghan Allies. These veterans want the United States to keep its wartime promises. They found a country littered with indifference. Quoting from the story, the pitch was well practiced by the time they reached Senator Deb Fisher's Omaha district office. I'm only alive talking to you today, Army veteran Matt Zeller explained to the two term Republicans staffer because my Afghan interpreter shot and killed these two Taliban fighters who were about to kill me in a battle 14 years ago. The woman, dressed in a leopard-print top and wearing a slight frown, listened silently from behind a plexiglass security partition. It was day eight, mile 1,240, of a cross-country road trip hastily organized to win over Republican senators. At stake, a stagnating effort to permanently resettle tens of thousands of Afghans brought to the United States when America's longest war came to a catastrophic end last year. But with Congress preparing to adjourn for the year and temporary permission for the evacuees to be in the country nearing an end, Zeller said time was running out. He and his three partners, another former soldier, James Powers, Navy Reservist Safi Raouf and his brother Zabi, needed the support of seven Republicans in the Senate to get the Afghan Adjustment Act passed. It was not just the right thing to do, Zeller said. America made a promise to these Afghans. We got to finish this mission, he said. So let's just pause there for a moment. We have two problems involving Afghan allies. There were the tens of thousands of them that we left behind in a despicable, broken promise. The United States of America, across multiple administrations, multiple political parties, multiple different leaders had told the Afghans who had helped our soldiers and our people in Afghanistan over two decades, we are not going to leave you behind. If things go sideways, we're not going to let the Taliban capture you and kill you. We're not going to leave you here if the terrorists are taking over the country to come and hunt you down over weeks, months, or years. That was the promise. President Biden reiterated that promise. About American citizens, about American legal permanent residents, and about our Afghan allies. Even up until the very end, he kept saying that we were going to fulfill the promise, and then we didn't. We left thousands of Americans behind, and there have been a lot of private efforts, sometimes hindered by the Biden administration, to get those Americans back. And then there are just tens of thousands of Afghans still there, many of them living in fear for good reason. Totally disgraceful. Then there's also this population of Afghan allies who we did get out, and we're trying to figure out what to do with them here, how to process them. There is a clock that's ticking, and there's legislation to try to help them, but it's running into some pitfalls for a variety of different reasons. So this is a story about some of these Afghan veterans who are focused on the Afghan allies who are here and— That does not really entail. It's separate from the massive population of them, tens of thousands of them that are still back in Afghanistan under Taliban rule. Last year, the story says lawmakers from both political parties assailed the Biden administration for its handling of the withdrawal. The Afghan Adjustment Act would eliminate the looming possibility of deportation or joblessness for the nearly 73,000 evacuees who entered the United States under, quote, humanitarian parole a two-year refuge that expires in 2023. The legislation would offer them the opportunity to receive green cards after undergoing additional vetting and broaden the government's options for extricating hundreds of thousands of others who were left behind. So there's that piece of it as well. Senator Amy Klobuchar introduced the bill. She's a Democrat, of course, from Minnesota, along with five co-sponsors, Lindsey Graham, Republican, South Carolina, Chris Coons, Democrat, Delaware, Roy Blunt, Republican, Missouri, Richard Blumenthal, Democrat, Connecticut, and Lisa Murkowski, Republican of Alaska. This guy, this veteran, Zeller, and his traveling companions, the story says, took their message across 25 states this fall, driving 7,600 miles in just five weeks. With the hope that they could rally support of local veterans groups and other constituents. And maybe then lawmakers would follow. The theme that Zeller leans on. This is the Washington Post reporting is moral injury. The idea that when Biden withdrew from Afghanistan, it was not only the Afghans who suffered. American veterans of the war did, too. He explained it is personal, he said describing his inability to sleep at night, knowing that Afghan, quote, brothers and sisters in arms have been left in limbo. It is the issue he believes is most likely to hit home with Republicans, the party that has long cast itself as a champion of the U.S. military and the importance of honoring its veterans. Now, the trouble is the asylum process is onerous. And a lot of people, quote, don't have documentation because they only came here with backpacks. They had to burn their documents to avoid getting stopped by the Taliban. This comes back to the hasty, chaotic, shameful and dishonorable withdrawal that Biden ordered and oversaw as commander in chief. We can sit here and argue about whether we should have left a small residual force behind. Given the circumstances on the ground. But we can't argue, I think, in any serious way about whether or not this thing was executed even remotely close to well or in an acceptable fashion. It just wasn't. It was rushed. It was a disaster. Billions of dollars worth of equipment left behind. Thousands of Americans, as I said. Tens of thousands of allies. This all could have been done in a much more well-planned orderly manner. But it wasn't. So now you have these people who understandably may have burned their paperwork so they couldn't be labeled a traitor with like a smoking gun in their pocket by the Taliban if they fell into the terrorist hands. They're now over here trying to get vetted They're trying to claim asylum. That's a lengthy and difficult process. By the way, I can't imagine that the border crisis doesn't play a role here. If They're trying to process asylum claims and adjudicate some of this stuff and vet certain people. They are also, the government federal apparatus, is absolutely crushed and overwhelmed at the southern border with all these other asylum claims, which are mostly bogus down there, unlike the Afghan allies, who have a very real And serious claim to asylum in this country. In fact, they were explicitly promised asylum here, unlike the vast majority of the illegal immigrants at the southern border. So this story is largely about convincing Republicans to vote for this bill, and I think the specifics of the bill would be important. But I think collectively we have to do something to help these people. And the fact that we are in this position where it's so difficult and still so chaotic – Is directly the fault of this president of the United States and his team. And another crisis that they have caused at the southern border is exacerbating, I would argue, this challenge as well. And the Washington Post sub headline talks about a country littered with indifference about Afghanistan. And we're not going to be part of that on this show. It's not a Democrat or Republican issue. I think Biden, of course, deserves the lion's share of blame. In terms of the way that the withdrawal went down. But these are real people facing real consequences. Our national honor is at stake, and that should matter. It does here. Guy Benson show continues. Final hour coming up. Bill Melugian from the border. We will talk about that crisis straight ahead. It is the happy hour on this Tuesday from Washington, D.C. Thank you for listening. I'm Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com is our website podcast, free of charge, on demand every day when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on social media at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram, or follow me personally on those same platforms at Guy P. Benson. This hour is sponsored by The Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious, very popular. At our Christmas party and really all across the country, growing in excitement and popularity across the country, available a lot more places than it was even a year ago, thelongdrink.com, their website, thelongdrink.com, always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. Joining us now, Bill Malugin, national correspondent here at Fox News. He is in La Jolla, Texas, and Bill, it's good to have you back. Merry Christmas.
3: Hey, Guy, Merry Christmas to you, and thank you as always for having me.
0: You bet. So let's start with the big picture here. I saw a tweet from our colleague Griff Jenkins earlier, and I'll just quote from it, breaking. Border patrol sources tell Fox News just 74 days into fiscal year 2023, more than half a million migrant encounters. To date, 505,137 total encounters at the southwest border, averaging just over 6,800 per day. Of those, 162,000 and change have been Title 42 Expelled. Okay. Uh, that is a huge number. I have not seen, unless I've missed it, the official final November numbers yet, but you do some basic math, and obviously it's going to be another huge month down there. October was breathtaking. November will be the same. December on a terrible pace. And that Title 42 component of those expulsions, still a relatively small percentage, that's going away in a matter of just days based on the Biden policy. That's a lot of data to digest. Put that in context for us.
3: Sure. So we're looking at fiscal year 2023 started on October 1st, and that was about 73 days ago. And in those 73 days, we have already had more than half a million migrant encounters at our southern border. To put that in further context, half a million in a little over two months. That is more than all of fiscal year 2020 combined. All of fiscal year 2020, I believe, was about 450,000 encounters. We are already at 505,000 encounters. So you can see, last year of Trump, in a whole year, we just beat that under Biden in a little bit over two months. And, yes, Title 42 dropping in eight days. These numbers are going to explode even further. Right now, we're averaging about 6,800 to 7,000 illegal crossings per day. Uh, The El Paso sector is getting hit the hardest the last three or four days in a row. Uh, just that sector has had more than 2,400 illegal crossings per day. Those numbers are historic, they're astronomical, and they are absolutely ridiculous because it's happening in December. Uh, Years past, you'd you'd have almost no activity in December. It would always be in the springtime and the early summer. This border crisis is year-round.
0: In fiscal year 22 that just ended at the end of September – It was, I know, 2 million-plus encounters, right? 2.1, 2.3, somewhere in that range. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, we're almost at a quarter of that number already two months in to the new fiscal year. It's wild.
3: Yeah, Guy, we we are well on track to hit well over 3 million encounters if these numbers keep up. So the Biden administration seems to just keep breaking its own records remember in fiscal year 21 we set the all-time record with 1.7 million encounters then this last year fiscal year 2022 we broke that record and set a new record at almost 2.4 million encounters now with these numbers we are well on track to surpass three million migrant encounters. So if this stays up, we are easily going to crush the record and set a new one in fiscal year 2023. And when Title 42 drops, you can expect those numbers are going to explode. There are migrants waiting in Mexican border cities all along the border for eight days from now. But the countdown is on for them. We went into Montemotos the other day and there are thousands of people camped out in public parks, standing around on public streets. They are simply waiting for Title 42 to drop before they plan to cross. And DHS better figure out a plan because we see what's happening in El Paso right now. They are completely overwhelmed. They're doing mass street releases. They don't have the resources for it. That might start happening in multiple sectors all along the border if they don't come up with a plan real quick.
0: I want to talk about some of the things that you're seeing down there and that our cameras are capturing down there. But maybe the Title 42 piece is the answer to this question. But you mentioned the seasonality and how usually during certain periods of the year, It's pretty slow down at the border, and that is simply not the case right now. Heading into the holidays, usually it's very quiet, but it is extremely busy, and the seasonality patterns aren't holding. Is it because word has spread like wildfire that Title 42 is going away, and it's basically like a sense of come one, come all? Or is the extent of this border crisis beyond any single event just so great in scope that the old rules or the old patterns just don't really apply anymore. What's happening?
3: I would argue it's a combination of both. The old rules certainly don't apply anymore because even before this Title 42 announcement, which I believe came out last month, we were seeing these high numbers in October, November. We were seeing high numbers in the fall of last year. These numbers were already skyrocketing compared to years before. But I also believe there are a lot of pull factors going on. So let's look at a few of them. Number one. Yes, a judge has ruled that Title 42 has to go away in eight days. That's pull factor number one. Pull factor number two, you had Chuck Schumer on TV the other day saying we should give amnesty to 11 million people in this country, give amnesty to everybody who's here already. And then pull factor number three, there's word that there is a potential bipartisan deal um, in the works to potentially give some amnesty to some of the dreamer crowd. So any way you slice it, there are there are warning lights coming on for migrants all along the border that now is potentially a good time to go to to come title 42 going away. There's talk of possible amnesty. There's talk about a possible immigration deal coming. Let's get in now while we have the chance and maybe, you know, things will work out for us years down the road.
0: Yeah, this is why, and I've said this on the show, I'll repeat it for the purposes of this conversation in general. If you look at some of the bullet points in that early stage, early version bipartisan deal being discussed, I would be kind of in favor of much of that, saying, "Okay, that's relatively sensible. That's not too much of a giveaway. This is something that both sides might be able to rally around. And in a vacuum, I could see myself or envision myself supporting it, but we're not living in a vacuum. We are experiencing the worst border crisis in American history. It's getting worse. And I think it is absolute madness to have any conversation around creating more pull factors, to use your term, right now – Without putting enforcement first and enforcement only provisions in place to start and show that the enforcement is serious, show that the crisis has been brought under control in a sustainable way, then perhaps have other conversations. Doing it out of that sequence to me makes no sense and probably makes the problem worse, which is why I'm against what's happening right now. That's just my editorial opinion. I know, Bill, you're on the news side. You're just telling us what you're seeing and hearing down there. But part of what is informing my analysis, my commentary, is what you're reporting on. And some of these images – and I know some people probably sort of get inured to it over and over again. There's reports of the chaos down there. But it feels like some of these mass influx events are even worse than we've seen before. And some of these groups that you guys catch on camera are absolutely massive. You talked about El Paso. And how that city is completely overwhelmed. Give us more details on what's happening there.
3: So what just happened in El Paso Sunday night is by far the single biggest mass group we have ever seen cross at the border during our nineteen months of doing this. It was well over a thousand people, possibly up to two thousand, and it was one single group. The only thing that I would ever compare it to would be the Haitians under the bridge in Del Rio, but that wasn't just one group. It was, you know, several groups streaming in over a span of 4 to 5 days. What happened in El Paso was a true caravan, U- up to 2000 people who all just decided to walk over at the exact same time. And that was on top of the thousands the city had already been dealing with. So now Uh, Border Patrol, they've got nowhere to put these people. They've got more than 5,000 people in detention, so they've literally just started mass releasing hundreds of them to El Paso City streets. You drive around the city, they're just homeless, living on the sidewalks, camped out, uh, living uh, under bus terminals. There's some of them sleeping in the airport. Um, They're simply all over the place. And the other side of that coin of what happens with that is I've got Border Patrol sources telling me because they're trying to deal with so many people there right now, They've pulled agents off of patrol in the El Paso sector. They've sent them all under that bridge to start doing processing, and they've even pulled border patrol agents from other sectors, from the Big Bend sector, and they're pulling CBP officers from the port of entry to go down there and help with processing. So what happens as a result? You hear me talk about this till I'm blue in the face. Now we have chunks of our border that are left completely open and unpatrolled Mm -hmm. because we have so many agents we are having to deal with these massive groups to do the processing and paperwork. This happens every single day. And a lot of people don't seem to understand that. They see these big groups and they say, well, look at all these asylum seekers looking for a better life. What's wrong with that? True, you know, you can sympathize with people looking for a better life. But what's wrong with that is that pulls agents off patrol elsewhere. And that leaves room for these tens of thousands of gotaways to keep get- getting in every single month. And we often report on some of the criminals who come in, some of these MS-13 gang members, some of the people on the terror watch list. That is the concern with this. There are two prongs to this border crisis, the humanitarian crisis and then the security side of the crisis. And right now, both are just completely screwed up.
0: Yeah, I mean, even if you're only focused on the humanitarian piece of the crisis and you want to pretend like the national security, public safety side doesn't exist at all, which is false and wrong and dangerous. But if that's what you want to focus on, even the humanitarian side of it is a complete catastrophe. People sleeping on streets, in bus terminals, you know, on sidewalks all over a major American city. And we're seeing it in all sorts of border communities as well. In what world is that acceptable to anyone? That's what I don't understand. And I'm kind of torn on this. And I want to come back to the gotaways in a second, Bill. I'm torn on the question about all the focus around President Biden going to the border or not going to the border. Obviously, he hasn't been there. White House said he was there uh, since he took office. That is not true. He was not there as vice president for eight years. He has not been there as president. It's worse than ever. It's his policies causing this. And so part of me thinks he should be forced politically basically to go down there and with his own eyes look at what he has created. On the other hand, I almost worry that if you send him down there on some box checking exercise where they will probably clean things up a little bit because the president's coming and all of that – He will then be able to say, oh, yeah, I went down there, I saw it, we're very concerned, we're working with our partners, and then sort of that pressure goes away. He can say he's done the thing. He didn't really see or internalize anything important, and he just moves on. So I guess I I don't really know if it's terribly helpful one way or the other if he actually goes down there and looks at it because ultimately they know what's happening. It just seems like their actions prove they have no intention of changing anything. They're happy to make it get worse. And they just don't care. I mean, it's a very cynical view of this thing, but I don't know what other view to have. If if you want
3: my opinion on this, I don't believe he's going to visit. Why should he from his perspective? Right. They didn't suffer that bad of a loss in the midterms. And they've got half the country's media not even covering this more than half. I mean, how is it? That what just happened in El Paso has received no national media coverage other than Fox News. But 50 people on a flight to Martha's Vineyard had everybody up there, up in arms, stories for days. El Paso is completely overrun right now. People living on the streets, Border Patrol completely over capacity, a huge caravan. And at last check, <laughs> I mean, we were the only ones out there along with local media. So when you have a lot of the country's media refusing to even cover this border crisis, if you're the president, why, why come down here? You're, you're you're getting away with it, right? I mean, if, if only Fox News viewers care about what's going on at the border, why would you come down here? I mean, I, I mean, that's the way I look at it.
0: Yeah, that could be the very cynical calculation that they're making at the White House, frankly, and they figure that they'll get cover from the press, as they so often do. And maybe, you know, they've run the numbers and they've kind of put it in the algorithm, they're like, yeah, no need to do this. No need to give any more oxygen to the story. There are some Democrats in Congress, more of them starting to chirp about this. So maybe that changes things a little bit for them now that we're past the elections. But I don't know. We'll see. Quickly, Bill, you mentioned the one to 2,000 people in that one group that crossed into El Paso over the weekend. You said you've never seen anything like that. It's just a huge number. Was that a group of folks who then immediately surrendered themselves? These are people who wanted to get caught, wanted to get processed, hoping and in many cases succeeding in getting released into the country with some court date way down the line. Was this a group trying to get captured basically?
3: That's correct. These were not godaways or runners. These were all people who simply walked across the river, and then they formed a big, long, single-file line, and they waited across illegally into the country to be processed because they expected to be released. And that line went literally as long as the eye could see. They were waiting out there uh, during the middle of the night. They started campfires. These were not runners or godaways. These were people who were turning themselves in in hopes that they were going right. to be released into the country. But what was interesting, Guy, which is something we'd never seen before, was we got video of mexican police escorting them into ciudad juarez there were 20 of these migrant buses full of these migrants and they were receiving a mexican government escort to the border they were dropped off at the border and then moments later they all walked across in this huge caravan
0: yeah i guess the mexican government feels like it's not really their problem anymore because the successful remain in mexico policy under trump is gone so like all right it's the american problem let's just give it to the americans and that's what is happening and as you pointed out all those people are waiting to get processed. They're pulling agents to process them, like, you know, like you know, doing paperwork, basically, pulling them away from their duty, protecting other parts of the border, which increases the number of gotaways. There are unknown gotaways, which we can't fully track by definition, but there are also known gotaways. What are you hearing about those numbers recently?
3: So for fiscal year 2023, the first two months, October and November, we are over 135,000 known Godaways. I have not gotten any of the December numbers yet, but we've been averaging well over 2,000 a day. So looking at December, you're probably going to have between, you know, at least 50 to 60,000 Godaways. So uh, every every month we're pushing over 60,000 Godaways right now. That's the bottom line right now, Guy. And part of the reason that's happening is, again, because these huge groups are coming across and we have fewer, fewer agents than ever out on the front lines. And the few we do have out on the front lines are just completely overwhelmed. I mean, down here in the RTV the other day, we just had a border agent killed. He was going after a group of runners and he crashed his ATV into a gate and died. And no comment from the White House, no statement, no nothing. And Border Patrol morale is just in the toilet right now. They feel that not only does the administration not care about them, they're starting to feel like they almost
0: want this to happen. They don't care, not even pretending to care with a statement about a federal official killed in the line of duty. It's just disgraceful. And it continues. And one of the only people in the country covering it faithfully is Bill Malugin, our correspondent here at Fox News in La Jolla, Texas, today. And, Bill, these conversations are always informative and very frustrating, and I'm sure we'll have another one again soon. We appreciate you doing that work down there.
3: Sounds good, Guy. Appreciate it, and happy holidays to you
0: and your family. Likewise. And with that, we will be right back on The Guy Benson Show.
2: Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
0: We're back. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. We went a little long there with Bill Malugin. I think it was worth it. So we're squeezed and crunch in this segment. So I will simply report and relay this development to you from the New York Times. They made a list of the year's most stylish people, the most stylish people in our great country. And among those on the list is Senator-elect John Fetterman of Pennsylvania, best known for his haute couture of hooded sweatshirts and mesh gym shorts in the middle of winter. I think at some point it's literally just like a giant Democrat PR machine where they're like, We're going to take something obviously untrue and say that it's true because we want to pump up someone that we like. There are a lot of words that can describe John Fetterman. Fashionable or stylish is just not among them. And we all know it, and they do it anyway because they insult our intelligence for fun, for sport. Most stylish. Come on. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show.
2: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
0: Earlier today on The Guy Benson Show, we caught up with chief political anchor and host of Special Report here at Fox News, Brett Bayer, our colleague. A lot to talk about these days in the world of politics, looking back at 2022, looking ahead to 23, 24, beyond. Here's part of my conversation with Brett Baier. We're at that most wonderful time of the year Mm -hmm. where we sit here and talk about sequestration and omnibus and continuing resolution. I know. Most people's eyes glaze over. Totally. And then everyone eventually goes home after a lot of yelling and screaming and no one's happy, but they get something done. Is that what's going to happen? Basically. Okay. Yeah.
5: And so lawmakers, they start to smell the – Fuel from the airplanes that are fueling up, yeah. That they're they're getting out of town, and it's just another fiscal cliff. And there is a lot that gets jammed in. Now, Republicans may say this is the dirty little secret. They may say, you know what? We just won. We want to have leverage. We want to do the budget ourselves when we take control of the gavel and the House majority. But the bottom line is that they don't mind a continuing resolution. Uh, an omnibus spending bill, rather, that takes it all the way to September 30th, because then they don't have to fight with a Democratic Senate on this issue immediately. Immediately. I mean, they're going to eventually when they come up with their own budget, right? They go through the process. But. It gives them some breathing room to do other things. That's the dirty little secret. The other dirty little secret is that there are retiring senators, Republicans and Democrats, who have a lot of stuff in this omnibus bill, whether it's an airport somewhere or a something, something. Uh, and they're leaving Congress and they want to say to their constituents,
0: look what I've done. So
5: and so's.
0: Yeah. Uh, no, I think that's right. We just had Kevin Brady. On the show, uh, probably for the last time as a sitting member of Congress, very influential guy for many years in this Man, town, especially
5: when it comes to budget, 100
0: percent of the tax cuts. I mean, he's has fingerprints all over that from from the Trump administration. We I just saw I, I'm pretty sure Kevin McCarthy walked past the studio minutes ago and I asked Brady, first of all, is he going to be speaker? Does he a, is he gonna is he gonna get those votes eventually, and let's say he is a speaker with that gavel? Will this be a majority that's functional in any sort of meaningful way? Kevin Brady said he was hopeful on both of those fronts, but that wasn't really all that definitive from him as someone who studies this stuff and covers it all the time. Brett I, you know I don't know i I would guess Kevin McCarthy will be the Speaker of the House, but there are some people who are recalcitrant in the caucus who just don't want to say yes to that. And then if they're already struggling just to pick their leader, are they going to get much done?
5: Right. So on the first question, whether McCarthy gets it or doesn't get it, currently he does not have the votes. And heading in, a lot of people say, you know, maybe he's going to get them. He's going to twist some arms. He's going to turn turn some folks. He's got some primary, you know, some uh, big time people like Jim Jordan and Scalise, at least publicly saying that, he, that McCarthy should be Speaker. But it's not a done deal yet. And if you look back at the other Republican speakers most recently, Paul Ryan, Denny Hastert, John Boehner, none of those men went in thinking they were going to be Speaker. There was somebody else that was in line. And these are the second guys on the other ballot. Um, so it's historic that you, if they don't have the votes, they go to somebody else pretty
0: quick. We'll see. It could be very interesting drama and like the first big dysfunctional mess of a new majority or technical majority or maybe not. Maybe he gets, you know, the the votes whipped. That's going to be a big challenge on the speakership. But then everything else as well. Pelosi, Pelosi was great at it.
5: Yeah. There's another possibility, and that is that some Republican manages to be this alternative candidate who actually gets Democrats to vote for him or her. And it becomes some conciliatory kind of speaker that that would throw Republican conservatives into a tizzy. But it's a possibility because it just comes down to numbers.
0: I think that's probably the threat that the McCarthy people would use against the Freedom Caucus guys who might not be willing to go with McCarthy. They want someone more conservative. So just wait. Do you want me or do you want all the Democrats and a handful of Republicans picking a very moderate Republican? Right. Uh, We'll be watching that. I don't know if you saw this. We opened the show last hour with this new USA Today Suffolk poll about 2024. It's ludicrously early, all the caveats and everything. But I thought of all the numbers that stuck out to me, it was Biden 47, Trump 40 in a rematch. That's meaningful because everyone knows those two guys. My full interview with Brett Baer, chief political anchor here at Fox News. Of course, he hosts a special report at 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday on Fox News Channel, available online guybensonshow.com also the podcast start to finish the entire show every day on demand totally free guybensonshow.com foxnews.podcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts when we come back the home stretch a quiz about Gen Z lingo ooh we'll see how we fare right after this
2: for the full interview and more go to guybensonshow.com
0: Home stretch on The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, free podcast every day. If you're listening on the broadcast, you can hear this fantastic bumper song by one of the queens of pop, quite frankly. An icon, a diva, and now a close personal friend of mine, Carly Rae Jepsen. Allow me to explain. Since we've had the Jepsen Wars here on this show, with myself representing the side of all that is light and good, And producer Christine leading the evil side against Carly Rae Jepsen. We had our guests here in studio during the 5 o'clock hour, our happy hour yesterday, Laura and Nate. What an amazing interview, by the way. What a fun conversation, although some of it was pretty tough, what's happened to them. Broadway star living the high life in New York, her career sort of at its peak. And then they lost everything because of COVID mandates and their refusal to just immediately go along, losing friends, losing jobs, just losing the whole life that they had. And now how they've moved out of the city and they're trying to restart. What an interesting conversation. Plus that Disney sing along at the very end, something we don't typically do here on the show. If you missed it, please go back and listen on the free podcast. GuyBensonShow.com. We've got that whole hour posted and we will replay it after the new year on our January 2nd show as well in case you missed it because it was really interesting. I had dinner with them last night. So I did special report. They took an Uber over to our neighborhood. We had dinner. And then after dinner we came back because they wanted to spend a little bit more time with Roy, our dog. And we were having a little bit of bourbon and hanging out. And Carly Ray Jepsen came up because it was on the playlist that we had in the background. We started talking about Carly Ray Jepsen. And it turns out that Laura was, as we mentioned on the show yesterday, the lead in Cinderella on Broadway. She was Cinderella when that show launched or relaunched in recent years. And she had her run as Cinderella on Broadway and then handed the baton as she was off to her next project, handed the baton to a brand new Cinderella and sort of mentored her and trained her up. And that new Cinderella on Broadway was Carly Rae Jepsen. And I then explained how we talk about this pop singer probably more than we should on the show. And she said, well, I'm, like, friends with her. Should I text her? I said, uh, is that even a question? Absolutely. So she texted Carly Ray Jepsen from my house. Carly Ray responded very politely, very lovely. And for that reason, I now consider Carly Ray Jepsen to be my close personal friend. Whether she is aware of that or not is immaterial. I'm just asserting it, and I feel like I have at least something to hang that claim on. So I just want to put that out there. I'm sure Christine is thrilled for me. But, Christine, I do want to instead turn our conversation to a quiz that was published in the Washington Post online about trying to decipher the lingo, the slang of Gen Z, the young folk, the youths. Of the American workforce. We have one here on our team, YY, Quiet Wyatt, who is 22, going on 72. So I was wondering if he would, in fact, pass the quiz. And he did. He does, I guess, interact with his own age group from time to time. So he was aware of some of this stuff. I also took the quiz for the purposes of science and this conversation. Christine, did you take the quiz?
8: Um, I started to, but I didn't understand the second question. So I just
0: stopped. (laughs) You stopped the quiz. Yeah,
8: I already got the first one wrong. So I was like, and I didn't even understand the second one. I don't like slack. Sorry, bosses out there. I'm supposed to be using it. So I just gave up.
0: Okay. So there were six questions. Wyatt scored a six out of six just as a baseline. He is in that generation. So that makes sense. I'm going to walk through these, and, Christine, we're going to try to help you at least guess. And you said you already got number one wrong, which was your Gen Z colleague reacts to something with, and then it's a skull emoji. What is this person likely conveying? Is it laughter, the end of life, destruction, or Halloween? What did you guess?
8: I put end of life.
0: Okay. And my answer was laughter, like I'm dead, this is funny. And I was correct. That's the correct answer. So you're O for one. I'm one for one.
8: So I can just send a skeleton to my mom, and that relays that. Well, that no, I'm from la- one laughing? boomer to
0: from one boomer to another, it's not going to make any sense. But like, <laughs> that's the way they talk about it. The skull is, I'm dead because I'm laughing. It would probably disturb your mother, Judgy e. Joyce. Don't do that to her. Okay. We're talking about multiple generations younger than you, Christine. All right. So here's number two. You assign your Gen Z colleague a task on Slack, or let's just say on a text message. Let's make it easier for you, on a text message. And you end your sentence with a period. What is risky about this message? So it's like you text Wyatt, uh, clip that sound for Guy, period. Why is that risky? Is it because Gen Z hates Slack, which is, I guess, part of the question here? It's the Slack conversation. Instead of a text, I'm just trying to make it easier for you number two gen Z only reads messages that arrive via email number three gen Z might interpret the period as a mere suggestion versus an assignment or a fourth option gen Z might interpret the period as a sign of anger or coldness
8: okay I'm actually gonna go with that last one like maybe the period would make it that seem is like- correct and
0: if we we've, had, <gasps> oh! that, we've oh! had that conversation we had a whole long home stretch about this Christine not long no. ago
8: No, we had a conversation about OK and K. We had
0: OK, but there's also like periods and punctuation was part of it. Okay, so you got that one right. So you're one for two. Here's question three. You say you're going to be, quote, out of pocket for a week. Your Gen Z colleague is confused. Why? Option one, they think your clothing is out of pockets. Option two, they assume you're lost. Option three, they think it's a warning you're going to be wild or crazy. Option four, they think you've run out of money.
8: I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't go out of pocket ever. I mean, you say I go airplane mode, but.
0: Yeah, that's out of pocket.
8: Okay, so th- maybe they assume you're lost?
0: Incorrect. Incorrect.
8: Would you get game show sounds?
0: <laughs> yep, yep, to <laughs> okay. illustrate whether you're getting the questions correct or incorrect. This was incorrect. The correct answer is they think it's a warning you're going to be wild or crazy, uh, option three. And I did, in fact, get that one right as well. So I'm three for three. I will admit on this one, I had to guess. I eliminated two answers that I thought made no sense, and I guessed between the last two. I guessed correctly. I'm three for three. You're one for three. Okay. Uh, Let's see. Question number four. (laughs) You send an email to a Gen Z colleague asking the person to complete a task. You add a smiley face emoji at the end of your paragraph. Your Gen Z colleague becomes worried. Why? Number one, the colleague doesn't want any more work. Number two, the emoji makes your colleague think something is wrong. Number three, the emoji makes your colleague think you're happy that there's more work. And option four, your colleague hates emojis.
8: I'm going to go with the first one. Your colleague doesn't want to work more. That's
0: incorrect. Ooh, sorry, sorry. Wrong again. (laughs) What are you, one for four here? Uh, The correct answer is the emoji makes your colleague think something is wrong. Because apparently smiley face emojis are now like they interpret that as passive aggressive bad, which also plays into our okay conversation that we had not long ago. So oof. Yeah, this is this is a struggle bus situation here for Christine. One out of four.
8: I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna get the next two right.
0: Okay. Question five. Your Gen Z colleague responds to something you said with a painting nails emoji, like a manicure type emoji. What is this person expressing? It's time for a manicure. Your colleague is suggesting sass, pettiness, or nonchalant confidence. Your colleague is extremely bored and has nothing to do. Your colleague's nails are chipped.
8: All right. I'm going to eliminate the manicure and the nails chipped because that just seems like too easy. So now I'm down to nonchalant confidence. Oh, I'm going to go with B because these Gen Zers, boy, do they got confidence. That's correct. No way!
0: Yes, the painting nails emoji is sort of like, hey, look at me, I'm doing something impressive. But it's kind of sarcastic.
8: I've never used that. Do you? Uh,
0: I actually have used it. I think I've used it maybe even in certain tweet contexts as well. Uh, All right, last question. You are two for five. Woo-hoo! So can you you pull this into a 50% failing grade as opposed to worse? This is the final question. Your Gen Z colleague responds to you with the word slay. What does this person likely mean? Go kill something? You got killed or beaten badly at something? Kudos, great job, or defeat the dragon?
8: I'm about to do very well here. It's kudos, awesome job. Slay queen. <laughs> that's the only reason I knew it.
0: <laughs> Three out of six. So that's Not bad. 50%. Uh, no, Not that's bad. bad. That's enough. That's enough. But. It was worse. You were on track to do maybe a one out of six. So you pulled it out of the fire a little bit at the very end. Three out of six. I was, not to brag too much, six out of six. Really? Although I only I only knew five out of the six for sure. I am at least Gen Z adjacent as a millennial, which is, you know, obviously one of your uh, excuses that. Is fair, you know. You are an Xer or a Boomer, depending on where you draw the line between those generations. So, not too bad. Dan, had you taken this quiz and how did you do?
7: Yeah, I took it just before we started, and unfortunately, I got four out of six. the okay. out of, The out of pocket thing, I was like, yeah. that was a millennial in me. I was like, they, they're lost. That's, I assume that. I didn't.
0: Yeah. I didn't understand that one. That and one that, was again a good guess on my part.
7: And then the Slack one, I just assumed they hated Slack, so I did not uh. do well. They call call it mid.
0: Well, you did better than Christine did. You're not dead last, so that's good. So it was a tie for first place between myself and Wyatt. And then Dan coming in effectively second because we were tied for first. And then I would say third place, but really fourth place, is producer Christine at three out of six. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners are still somewhat baffled. You can take this segment on the podcast, send it via Slack or text, to one of your younger relatives, perhaps, with all of these emojis, a skull emoji, the painting nails emoji, a smiley emoji, and have them maybe walk you through this in more detail, if you're curious. And Christine, I don't know what to even offer you in terms of help here. I think Megan's maybe too young for this. So I think maybe just the state of confusion will remain the default here. I'm sorry.
8: I'm actually going to give this quiz to Megan. Megan says Slay Queen all the time. So, um, I mean, I think you're right. She's probably a little too young. I'm actually proud of myself. I thought I was going to get zero out of six. So this is a win for me. I'm Mm -hmm. happy.
0: Yeah, just like – it's like when you did, what was it, Dry January last year, and -hmm. you made it something like four or six days, and you said that that was
8: impressive. Oh, my god. You were like, this
0: is such a success. Because you just redefine failure as success, and, I mean, I guess – If that's how you cope, if that's your coping mechanism, then, you know, you can take that up with Roy, your therapist, and we're out of time anyway. So you can report back. Let us know how Megan does on this. We'll be back here, same time, same place, on the radio program tomorrow. It is The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Have a great night.
2: Slay!